You are listening to the Restoration LA podcast. For more, visit us at restorationla.org. Heavenly Father, God, God, we feel your spirit this morning. We feel your joy. We feel your kingship. God, just reign over our lives this morning. May we put aside all other things. Just focus in on what you have for us this morning. Pray in your son's name. Amen. So, when I was at my old church, I was leading a college ministry. Uh, I was younger in those days, and I was, uh, uh, didn't have as much experience as I have now, I think. Um, and I was leading this college ministry, and two of the college students there got together. They started dating, and I'd known the guy a lot longer. Okay? Uh, I, I knew him pr- uh, pretty much since I was a child. Now, when two people get together, they often bring baggage to the relationship, right? Everyone brings a little bit of baggage, insecurities to their own relationship. He could be blunt, he could be raw, and someone's way too honest, and he sometimes had no tact, no compassion, and he was kind of uh, floundering around in life, no real direction, he wasn't really going anywhere. She, on the other hand, had a very harsh upbringing. She had overbearing parents, who would be highly critical, and she had lots and lots of high life goals. And so this sort of combination can obviously bring a lot of conflict. And they would argue quite a bit. One evening, after a delicious meal of Korean barbecue, which I sorely miss in the pandemic, um, we were stuffed, we were all tired, and sure enough though, an argument between them breaks out. I'm there, and you know, I'm, I'm their college leader. I'm, I'm supposed to kind of help them out, kind of guide them through this. We're all tired, we're all full, but we, we head into the car, see if we can hash this out. Now the thing about me is that I connected more with her issues. Because those were kind of issues that I saw growing up. Those issues, a little bit that I experienced, uh, not, not from my parents, but from other people around me. And they hit me in a certain way. They hurt. They hurt me deeply. And so when I see those things come out, I'm like, oh, I gotta fix that. I gotta heal that. I gotta, I gotta, you know, focus in on that stuff. And so the problem was then I focused in on her and I didn't really focus much on him. And you can kind of tell where that might go, right? Because I would say to her, why can't you just see what you're doing? And she winces, hurt that I hadn't really heard her side of the story. And I can feel God wanting to break in and in a completely different direction than I was going. But no, 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 God. I'm a seminary student. We've been over this so many times. You're so harsh on him. She begins to lose the confidence in her eyes. And I can feel Jesus in the back of my mind. Hey, you're kind of losing her. But no, 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 Jesus. I have taken a single course on psychology. And then he breaks in. You can't, you can't be this way. You know I'm, that's just the way I am. You, you just got to roll with it, right? You got to be more flexible. And I say, yeah, you can't be this way. You do need to be more flexible. Now she's ganged up on. Her shoulders slump. The Holy Spirit whispering into my soul, she's in so much pain right now. Trust me. Let me speak into her life. Speak healing truth, not what you're doing. But no, 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 Jesus, I've had the experience. I know what I'm doing with these things. And I realize, okay, we talked about flexibility. I, can, I, can, I, can, I know what I need to say now. My tone takes an uptick as I know I have a really good point to make. I have a really good point, and I go in for the kill. 
You're so inflexible. You can't be so rigid. You want to go into missions, right? Missionaries need to be flexible. If you're not going to be flexible, you're not going to make it in missions. Exasperated, in tears now, she says, then I guess I'll never amount to anything. And she shuts down. And at that moment, I finally realized what I'd done. It was a quiet ride back to church. I didn't want to help anymore. I was exhausted. They didn't want to talk anymore. I'd focus in on her problems, her flaws, her mistakes, that I didn't realize that I was driving her away. And I don't think I even really even mentioned Jesus as much during the whole conversation about he wanted to dispel some of the lies that she had grown up with, about how he wanted to see her flourish and shine, how he understood the pain she felt and how he wanted to heal her. He saw her with potential, not just broken parts. I had become so focused on the problem, the issues, that I forgot about the person. I would reduced her to a puzzle to be solved, a problem to be fixed, damaged goods, not a human being in pain, desperately searching for a touch from Jesus. I dehumanized her. None of what I said was necessarily untrue, but it wasn't the right thing to say at that moment. In the process, I damaged my relationship with her, their relationship, probably her relationship with Jesus at some level. Now, I'm happy to say that I hopefully learned a bit from there, and I'm a bit wiser than I was back then. And today, we are all still friends. I was just texting them yesterday, and they are now actually happily married. But that's mostly Jesus, I think. But no one likes that, right? No one likes to be put in the spotlight, all eyes on them, the walls closing on them, feeling isolated and judged. When that happens, we close in, we shut off, or we lash out. Whatever our reaction is, relationship is damaged or destroyed. We start feeling this sense of otherness, this distance. You start feeling like an object, a problem, being foreign to someone. Last week, Jody mentioned several reasons why we don't like to share our faith with people, right? Sometimes we've, uh, it's fear. We don't, want to be, we don't want to offend them. We don't feel equipped. And those are all valid reasons, sure. But I would add one more to that survey. Sometimes we can do what I did. To become so focused on the issues, the problems with people, their sin, especially the ones that, you know, kind of gross us out, that sort of ick factor, the taboo things, Sometimes we focus so much on that that we forget that these are real people made in the image of God, people with dreams, people with hopes, people who need a touch from God. What happens is we just see them as objects. Why bother sharing our faith with that? We have our God, our Jesus, who wants to have an authentic relationship with them, full of grace, full of love, full of love. And yes, sometimes correction and growth as well. But because of our own human opinions, our judgments, sometimes our own traumas, our fears, our hurts, and yes, sometimes the endless news cycles and social media, we sometimes end up blocking an actual encounter between people and Jesus. In an odd way, we end up, to use a phrase that is so common today, canceling people for Jesus, right? We have this entire thing about cancel culture these days. And regardless of how you feel about cancel culture or about things that may have been tried, uh, people that have tried to cancel, Okay, and some things are good, some things maybe not. 
Regardless of how you feel about it, the end result is basically the same, which is insecurities, disagreements, values, and offenses getting examined, blown up, and in the process, we scream and yell at each other because of our insecurities, and we are offended in our self-righteousness, and we yell at each other through our keyboards, right? <laughs> and what's basically happening is it's just human nature being played out on a global electronic scale. The cancel culture battle is just the latest episode in this internet social outrage culture that we've all grown to love to hate or love or hate to love, or maybe some of us love to love it, I don't know. But that's basically what's happening. It's, it's happening all over. And here's, here's the funny thing. It's not just one side that's doing it. It's all sides. Every side likes to do it, whether you want to believe that or not. Every side likes to do it, because all sides are trying to win this ultimate war between who can become more outraged and more woke. I'm outraged. Well, I'm outraged that you're outraged. And I'm outraged that you're not outraged. And this goes on and on and on and on. And it happens for every single side, whether you're liberal, whether you're conservative, whether you're a Christian or not, or anything in between. You do not like getting your life examined. You don't like being put under the microscope. But you'll love to do it to someone else, right? The big one recently, Dr. Seuss, right? Because of, yeah, some pretty racist stuff that is in some of his books. And some people want to get rid of those, including the publisher. And the publisher does admittedly have the right to do it to their own books. And it's only these six books, no matter what some news will tell you, it is only those six books that are being removed, not the entire library. Now, I agree. Some people may want to remove the entire library and cancel Dr. Seuss entirely. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I don't think that is what's happening. And, of course, some people just want to ignore it. Okay? Sure, that has happened. But a few years ago, some people wanted to cancel another Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax, because it had some environmental uh, conservation-type messages, and some people don't care for that. And a few years before that, People wanted to cancel Horton Meets a Who, uh, Horton Meets a Who, because it has maybe, maybe not, some uh, pro-life messages, and some people didn't like that. So it just goes on and on and on. Or you think about Chick-fil-A, right? Some people wanted to boycott Chick-fil-A because they support some kind of questionable programs that are anti-LGBTQ. Or some people wanted to cancel Target because they had some all-gender restrooms. Or some people wanted to burn their Nike shoes because they supported Colin Kaepernick. They wanted to cancel Hobby Lobby because of their health insurance and abortion stance. Whether it's liberals canceling something on Disney or conservatives canceling something on Disney, because both have happened. Christians screaming at one another because they have different theology. It happens to everyone, and it happens because of everyone. So what's my solution? Well, I'm just going to go watch Star Wars Mandalorian Season 2 and the future Season 3 because it is a Star Wars nerd paradise. And then I'm going to go buy some cosplay goods at Hobby Lobby while wearing Nike shoes. I'm going to read a theology book that has five different views of how uh, salvation works and another with a comparison on predestination versus free will. And I'm also going to read some Dr. Seuss, but not the racist ones because that, you know, that's not so good. And I'm going to do it at Chick-fil-A because spicy chicken sandwich and waffle fries. And then I'm going to go, sorry, take a dump at Target in their restroom after buying groceries there. There. No one is happy. Except me, because I had a pretty good day. It just goes on and on, guys. Right? I see scores of believers bemoaning cancel culture or trying to cancel something else and yelling over the internet about whatever. But I don't see too much of sharing Jesus. We end up building walls made of bricks of criticism. 
We build fences made of chain-link animosity. We build barriers of our hearts with cynicism, battle lines with swords of outrage. We raise our pitchforks and torches of fear. And on a deeper level, that anger and negativity and over all these little disagreements goes deep into our minds and our hearts, and we end up doing, and what we end up doing is we start to see people as the enemy, the outsider, the foreigner, the sinner. We create otherness, and we push them away. Because when we do that, it becomes easier to just cast them off. It becomes easier to just ignore them, or criticize them, or condemn them. It's easier to see them not as people, it's easier to then separate from them. People turn into objects. Objects don't need love. Objects are easier to hate. You know, we're talking about needing encounters with Jesus. And Jesus wants to have those encounters with people. But maybe we're actually blocking those encounters. It's happened now, and it's happened, well, basically forever. Again, it's just kind of, kind of human nature. Let's take a look at what happens sometimes in the Bible. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at a disciple named Ananias. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 14. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. This was his moment. What is my mission, God? Do I get to plant a church? Am I going to collect an offering for the poor? Start a youth group? Open a Chick-fil-A? I'm ready. Put me in, coach. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I'm sorry, what, God? Because this is not exactly a prime task for Christians during this time, because Saul of Tarsus, the man that Jesus was sending him to, was the public enemy number one for Christians. He was raised a Pharisee, one of the very groups that opposed Jesus throughout his life. But this guy was the Pharisee of Pharisees, the top of his class. Saul was overseeing the persecution. He was there when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned. In fact, he was there watching it, and people would lay their coats at his feet. And this is what, that, what uh, Acts says about it. Acts um, chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of their killing him. You know, I just kind of picture Saul standing there, arms crossed, wicked grin, narrowed eyes, and he approved of their killing him. Kind of cast him as the villain, right? Acts chapter 8, verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Acts 9, 1 through 2, Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This news had spread. I'm sure Ananias heard it. He's going to Damascus. Damascus? I live in Damascus. And now Jesus is sending me to him? I kind of wanted to hide from him, not find him. So his answer, Acts 9, 13 through 14. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. Jesus, 
Now, Ananias, he was a disciple. Tradition tells us he may have been one of the 70 disciples that, that Jesus had originally sent out. So he'd been hanging out with Jesus for a long time. He knew Jesus' love was big. He knew his grace was huge. Jesus went to the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the very people that no one wanted to hang out with. And here we have a direct order from Jesus. Okay, Jesus, you're telling me this directly. But Jesus, I can't quite, quite wrap my mind around this one. Now, this wasn't just a theological dispute with, 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 between Ananias and Paul. It's not like, oh, you believe this? I believe this. Oh, that's okay, you know. It's not just that. No, no, there was a real danger here. Paul was literally persecuting. This was going to be, hey, Paul, and hey, I'm going to throw your butt in jail. There's a risk here. Ananias understandably felt fear, maybe even some hate. Saul of Tarsus. The persecuting Pharisee. Jesus called him into a relationship with Saul because Jesus wanted a relationship with him too. But Ananias' initial reaction? Nuh-uh. That's canceled. Paul is too much on the outside. Now you may think, like, you wouldn't send me away just to get locked up, right, Jesus? He might be thinking that. But he says, no, I... I can't, I can't do it. I know, I know your love is big, God, but this guy? And he questions Jesus. He didn't fully trust Jesus. And he lists all the reasons not to, right? He uses his own human wisdom, understandable, yes, but his own human wisdom, his fears and his insecurities. And I think a lot of us are in that space when we let our fears and insecurities kind of rule over us. We aren't secure enough in Jesus sometimes, not secure enough in his love. And when that happens, we, we, several things can happen. We, we can sometimes feel like we have to defend everything or make everything make sense. That's kind of what Ananias was trying to do here. And what happens when that happens is that we deflect, right? We start thinking about all the reasons we shouldn't. And when we think about people, we deflect to them and then think about all the reasons why they shouldn't get the gospel. And we start looking at their flaws. So looking at their issues all their differing opinions, etc., etc. It's kind of natural, but that's what happens. And we just start focusing on how wrong they are instead. Is that what Jesus wants us to do? I don't think so. Now, the Apostle Paul, okay, who is Saul, spoiler alert, he does get converted, um, he says this to the Corinthians, uh, a, a church that he helped found. He says this, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit of power and of power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Are we resting ourselves on our fears and trying to make everything happen with lofty words? Or are we relying on Christ and Christ alone? Are we relying on the power that comes from Jesus? Paul's strategy was focusing solely on Jesus and the power of God. In our human wisdom, we focus on how sinful people are, how much they need to change, how much we disagree. And we bring lofty words and plausible words of wisdom, not to mention internet outrage and insulting memes and words of condemnation. And in doing so, we end up forcing people away. Away from us and into otherness. 
away from any relationship, away from a chance to encounter Jesus. And we forget that these really are people that God loves. We start turning them into labels, into enemies. And when they become our enemies, something else can happen. Our disagreements can become disgust. Disgust. We might actually start to feel some of that towards people. Turn with me, if you will, now to Luke 19, 1-7. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. So Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And as a tax collector, he is not very well liked, okay? Because tax collectors in this time, uh, they allied themselves with the Roman government, the oppressive Roman government who had, who had subjugated the Jewish people. So he basically turned against his own people uh, and joined the enemy. And it says he was rich. Right? He was rich. And the way he got rich was defrauding people, and he later admits this. He defrauded people, and so he basically extorted and used uh, ill-gotten means to get more money from people. So you can see he was probably not a very popular guy. So Jesus is coming through this town. He wants to go see him, and he's short. He can't see over the crowds. You can kind of picture him, you know, trying to push his way through, but everyone's like, uh, no tax collector, pushing him back. So on account of the crowds, do we push people away? Do we look at their sin and push them away? And then what do they call him? A sinner. He's gone to the house of a sinner. They labeled him tax collector, traitor, sinner. They tried to keep Zacchaeus from Jesus and grumbled when Jesus acknowledged him. But what about us? Do we have people in our lives that have sinned against us or whose character we disagree with that we label? Do we reduce them to just their label? Do we let our own judgment define them, even if we may be right in that situation? Do we get caught up so much in their wrongness and our feelings of disgust that we just shut off the relationship and basically just let any chance of Jesus uh, encountering them pass us by? What if our own disgust at their sin shuts out any chance? We don't see them as people. We see them as objects. We see them as problems. We see them as arguments to be won, targets to be beat down. We dehumanize them. And also we push them deeper into their otherness. I could never reach out to her. I could never preach the gospel to him. I could never love them myself. They're too sinful. They're too set in their ways. They can't stand Christianity. They would never come to church. Maybe it's a family member with a grudge. Maybe it's a friend who's always criticizing Christianity. Maybe it's a coworker who's just so hard to get along with. Maybe it's a people group that you've been raised with a bias against. Maybe it's a people group that, yes, is living in a biblical sin, but you're just so disgusted by it. Maybe it's that whole other political party, or both political parties, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's those you disagree with in person, online, on social media. But we're reminded of the verse, 2 Peter 3.9, God desires that no man should perish, and we think to ourselves, sure, God, you don't want them to perish, 
But I mean, the chances of them working this out are slim to none. I've done the math. I've read their posts. I've experienced the heartache. You know the hurt they do. I've seen the way they act. I've heard what they say about the church and your people. You know that they're hurtful. You know how far away they are. Sure, you don't want them to perish, God. But are you honestly expecting me to reach them? Them. Here's the other thing about otherness. When we put people in their otherness, it's comfortable. Because essentially, they're not people. I don't have to feel anything for them now. I don't have to feel bad for not reaching out. I don't have to feel this anxiety over a disagreement with a person. There's no relational tension. That's a little more comfortable. That takes less effort. Never mind that my words are pushing them away. Hmm. We just to start to just lose our care. We don't care anymore. We become callous. We become desensitized. We become like Jonah, the prophet. We all remember Jonah, right? The guy at the fish. God asked him to go preach to the Ninevites, who, yes, were pretty sinful people. Jonah didn't say, yes, I know them. I've been praying for them. God, you are so merciful. That's awesome. Send me over there. We're going we're gonna to show them the error of their ways, and you're going to forgive them, give them grace. Let's do this, God. You're awesome. I can't wait. No, his response was, nope. I am fleeing from you, God. I am out of here. I do not want to go to that people. I am not going on there. You can go Sodom and Gomorrah on them. Now, of course, we know God pursued him. He sent a storm, sent a fish. Jonah prayed in the fish, got vomited up to uh, Nineveh and uh, preaches to them, and they repent. Yay, right? That's what we learn in Sunday school. But there's a fourth chapter that Sunday school doesn't always talk about when we find out Jonah's real attitude. So Nineveh repented, and this is Jonah's response to their repentance. Jonah 4, 1 through 3. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, because it is better for me to die than live. In his little pity party, Jonah walks away. He finds a shaded tree that he likes and sits there wanting to look at the city. God wilts the tree, it dies, and now the sun's beating down on him. Jonah 4, 8 through 11, when the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Toddler emphasis mine. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor, which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left and also many animals? Jonah's attitude is, man, I would rather die than see these people get saved. I care more about this bush than I do about these people. I don't know how Jonah's heart got so hard towards these people. But the Bible is basically telling us that, yeah, it's possible. It can happen to anyone. He was a prophet, and it happened to him. Jonah didn't care about 
not just one person, but over 120,000 people in this city and some animals. Peter would have a field day canceling him. Their otherness had gone to a point to where they weren't even people to him. People with souls, people with lives, people with loved ones. All Jonah could see was their sinfulness, and he loathed it. And basically, he couldn't care less. And sometimes I think this is what has happened in the church. Because the church has kind of wrapped itself up in this persecution complex, and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Everyone is dangerous. Everyone is lying to us, so we need to protect our own. And we may say we want to reach out to people, but do we actually do it? I think that's kind of happened. And it can happen for us too. They're so sinful. Why bother? They'll never turn to Jesus. I'm not even sure I want to see them get there. People's otherness, driven by our fears, our disagreements, can turn into disgust and labeling, which lets us objectify people and dehumanize them, which can harden our hearts to a place where we just stop caring. This week, we saw a gunman take the life of eight people in massage parlors in Georgia. We've already talked a little bit about this, of course, but six of those people were Asian-American women. In conjunction with a sharp rise in anti-Asian hate crimes across the country, some that have taken place in my own city of Roland Heights, the Asian-American community is understandably on edge, and this tragedy really took its toll emotionally and spiritually on us. We as a church, we stand with the Asian American community. This kind of hate cannot go on. This kind of hate has always existed. Like many cultures in this nation, there has been a history of racism against Asians, and we may not always see it, we may not always hear about it, and we may feel it kind of disappeared, but it hasn't. And if you're wondering why you don't hear so much about it, you can talk to me later about it. We can talk about the model minority myth and why that is extremely um, misleading and dangerous and why it also allows us to ignore systemic racism. Um, again, if you want to talk to me about that, that'll take way too long to talk about right now. But according to the gunman, who has already confessed to the crimes, this was not a racially motivated killing spree. Rather, he says that he may have a sex addiction and that he, he frequented these massage parlors and he felt now he needed to remove these temptations from his life, which admittedly calls into the question about the kind of theology that he has um, and the community that he's been receiving. And yes, he is a professed Christian. But let's say the shooter, at least in his own mind, believes that this was not a racial hatred crime, but he had to eliminate these tempting women from his life. So maybe not an overt standard racist act that we've had the unfortunate burden of enduring over the last few months. But it points to another dimension that drives racism. The ability of human beings to dehumanize each other. That's why slavery existed. Well, it still exists, really. Because we can dehumanize people and make them property. Even if this man's crimes were not specifically racially motivated, his sex addiction reveals something else. Because sexual lust is basically dehumanizing someone, right? It's objectifying another person. Lust at its core is not just trying to fill a sexual need. It is reducing and objectifying someone so that you can, in your own mind, possess them. 
especially when that person is not in a committed relationship with you. And this makes it kind of worse. It doesn't make it better, as some people are trying to make it sound like. It makes it worse because this speaks to another point of racism. It speaks to the West domination of the East paradigm. It speaks to the racial stereotype of Asian women being these soft, submissive, exotic women. They're often referred to as dragon ladies and lotus blossoms. Hey, racism and misogyny all wrapped into one. But by dehumanizing and objectifying, it gives one license and permission to fantasize or even pay for a person. And in that same way, maybe in a more extreme way, in its darkest form, the shooter objectified these victims, not as people, but as simply temptations and targets, not human beings made in the image of God, that he had to remove from his life by killing them. We see this kind of dehumanization done in the military when enemy soldiers are dehumanized so that it's easier for your side to kill them. Now, I am not saying that any one of us for labeling someone, for dehumanizing someone, I'm not saying that we're close to murdering someone. But the root sin is still the same. On a spiritual level, this is sin. Plain and simple. Because by dehumanizing someone and reducing them to a label and objectifying them, we are denying that they too are made in the image of God. That they too are human beings loved by God. When we do that, we spit in the face of the creator who has made them and has given them that image. And when we judge others so harshly that we start making them into the other, we take for granted the grace that was given to us. And we basically say, that grace was just for me. Is this the way Jesus wants us to be? I think not. Jesus wants us to reach them. We as believers are called into relationship with him, with each other, and to other people. God wants to bring people from otherness to family. God wants to bring people from otherness to family. How do we get past our darkened, wounded, and cynical hearts? How do we unlabel? How do we go to humanizing again? How do we go beyond the issues and the sin and cultivate relationship with people? It starts with Jesus. It starts with Jesus. It starts with our own relationship with Jesus. Because, yes, there are plenty of people living in this world without God. Yes, of course. But at some point, so were we. At some point, we disagreed with God. We were labeled. We were judged. We were so sinful. That was us at some point. And yet, Jesus loved us anyway. And yet, Jesus brought us into family anyway. That's the Jesus that you and I have right now. The Jesus is not, who does not reject us for even our darkest of pasts, the most egregious of sins, whether heavily politicized or casually ignored. Jesus who calls us to the heart of the Father that allows us to approach the throne of God with grace and encouragement. Who sees us not as the other, not as trash, not as too disgusting to love, but wanted, who wanted to embrace us and call us a son or a daughter. You and I have experienced that. That is our Jesus, so let's share that Jesus. God has called us into family. He didn't say we had to be perfect. We didn't have to have it all together. We didn't have to fix everything before we came to Jesus. We didn't have to agree on everything. We didn't have to know everything. Jesus accepted us 
anyway. Romans 5, 8. But God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why do we think that people have to fix everything before they can come to Jesus? In 2007, I had the privilege of going to Japan uh, on, a, on a short-term missions trip, and I would love to go back on another trip. So if anyone wants to go, let me know. I still have connections. We can go. Now, do, do I want to go back because I could eat all of the ramen that I wanted to? Yes. Do I want to go back because there would be unlimited Japanese curry? Yes. Do I want to reach them for the gospel? Yeah, that too. Um, do, but also, there's this thing in Japan that I, that I love. It's called the onsen. Okay, the onsen. The onsen is the Japanese bathhouse. And the Japanese bathhouse is a place of relaxation and cleanliness. And this bathhouse, uh, some of them are just like maybe one pool, but it's just like a giant warm jacuzzi, like a, a huge pool that's entirely heated, okay, just made for relaxation. And some of them are super fancy. They have like electro shock therapy pools. They have pools like up on the top of the roof that are warm, but it's cool outside. So like super nice and relaxing and serene. They have saunas. They have like, you can rub salt on yourself. I don't really know why. Someone can explain that later. Um, but it's all this huge relaxation thing. Okay? Also, you're, you're naked in front of everybody, just to let you know. Um, men are separated from the women, just letting you know. That is not, no, okay. Anyways, um, the thing about, though, with these onsens is you have to be super clean to get in. Now, you might be thinking it's a pool. You just go in. What, what's the problem? But in Japanese culture, cleanliness is a huge, huge thing. Okay? You think of an, of an Asian family, you usually have to take off your shoes before you go in their house, right? The Japanese kind of take it to the next level. In most Japanese houses, in the front of the house, there is one room that is reserved for your shoes. You walk in, and you take off your dirty, filthy shoes, and you leave it there. And then you step in, and you put on some nice, clean slippers. And you, those slippers never go out. The shoes never go in. The dirt stays outside. The same thing with these onsens. So what you do before you enter the pool is you have to clean yourself and shower. Okay, so you go in this little shower. They give you a sponge and, and a little towel and soap and shampoo, and you scrub yourself for like 10, 15 minutes, and you clean yourself. And if you're not clean enough to their standard, they might send you back to those showers. And like, I swear, like when I scrubbed myself down, I was like, I, I'm sure like seven layers of skin are just gone. But I felt clean. I was clean. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes we think that people have to get completely clean before they come into Jesus' presence. But that's not the case. That's not the way it necessarily needs to be. Why do we put that on other people? It wasn't like that for us. When we remember Jesus' love for us, it should inspire gratitude that he could love even us. And he can also love them. God loves so we love. God cares, so we care. Remember Jonah, who did not care? Who did care? God. He said, and should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? When the Ninevites encounter God through at least the three days of, of Jonah's faithfulness, they went from otherness and sinner to transform hearts. God desires that no man should perish. God loves, so we love. We find out that God's love was bigger and more total and more encompassing than we ever thought.
possible. Zacchaeus found this out. Luke 19, 5 through 10. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to the guest of, the, of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Pharisees called him a sinner, tried to block his path. But Jesus calls him Zacchaeus by name. I know you. Zacchaeus, after after he meets Jesus, changes his ways and repents. And Jesus says to him, salvation has come to your house. And you too are a son of Abraham. He knows us by name. And he knows everyone else by name too. Zacchaeus went from labels to person. Sinner to son. Otherness to family. And the Apostle Paul found this out too. Acts 9, 15 through 17. This is after Ananias, Ananias makes, his, um, makes his plea to not send him. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, Go, for he... Saul is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, Paul gets two Jesus encounters. The first one we didn't really talk about, but most of us know that story, right? When Paul was riding into Damascus on his horse or donkey, he gets uh, Jesus appears to him with blinding light, throws him off his horse, calls out his persecution, shows him that he really is God, and blinds him. And then Jesus uses Ananias, who has to look past all of Paul's sin to take the next step. Paul needed a Christian friend. Because God acts first and then asks our participation. And Ananias trusted Jesus' word. Jesus' promise him superseded his bias and his fear. God asked him not to look at the issues, not at the danger, but to the mission, to the person, to Jesus. Ananias' courage is a testament to God's power. And how does he greet How does he greet Paul? Brother Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus sent me to you. Brother. He's not greeted with spit in the face. He's not greeted with handcuffs. He's not greeted with a knife in the back. He's not greeted with internet outrage. He's greeted with brother. How many people need to hear that? How many people need to see a Christian who's not judging them, not condemning them, but instead welcomes them? Ananias gives him several things, not just welcomes him, but he shows him a work of power. Because I'm sure Paul knew, understood that no Christian wants to associate with me. And yet here was Ananias, just as Jesus had said, being faithful, overcoming his fear. He sees the power. And he sees a confirmation that, yes, Jesus sent me. This wasn't just some crazy happening. Jesus was real. We confirm Jesus' reality to people. 
And not only that, he brought him healing. I'm here to heal your blindness. And he gave him vision, not just this vision, but he gave him the plan. And he brought the Holy Spirit. And then they shared a meal. How many people need that? How many people need a Christ follower like that to reach them, to look past everything that they've done and say, yes, you're welcome. My Jesus is real. He gives me strength. He gives me power. He gives me the ability to overlook sin. And he wants to see you healed. And he wants to give you vision. And his Holy Spirit wants to dwell with you. And by the way, let's eat together. Dine at my table. Let's be family. I think this is the vision that Jesus wants for us in our interactions with the world. What an incredible way for Paul's journey to start. To know that the God of the universe could overlook everything that he'd done. He was persecuting everyone. Now, you have to remember, his theology was basically, it's my way or the highway, right, as a Pharisee. It's the Pharisee way or no way. Basically, God's love was not for anyone but us. But then, after he realizes everything, he sees the errors of his ways. This is Paul's own quote, I am the worst of sinners. And yet, God could still love me. And yet, God could still love me. And not just love me, but use me in the most incredible way. And Paul became the greatest missionary that this world has ever seen. It had to come from Jesus. It didn't come from Ananias. It came from Jesus. So that's what we've got to bring to people. That's who we've got to bring to people. God's love is bigger than we've ever imagined. Because what could have turned Paul from breathing murder and hate to I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing my Lord Jesus Christ? What could turn Paul from the love, is, love of God is basically for me and my people alone to the love of God is for Jews and Gentiles, male and female, free or slave? Paraphrasing Galatians 3.28. What could change Paul from the love of God is just for us Pharisees to, hey, Romans, Roman Jews, get back together. Stop hating each other. Let's unify under the banner of Christ. What could have turned Paul from what he was before into what he became? That big a paradigm shift, that big a worldview change, that big a transformation. Jesus, only Jesus. That's what we've got to bring to people. God's love for humanity is greater than anything we could have imagined. Yes, God still wants to confront our sin, absolutely. Yes, he wants us to grow and transform. He wants us to take a good hard look at things. Yes, absolutely. But those changes are not necessary for us to go and reach people. The love of Jesus is for you and for me. It was for Paul and Ananias. It was for the Ninevites and Zacchaeus. And it's also for that person who we think will never come to Christ that person that offended us, that person who tried to cancel us, that person we tried to cancel. We don't know what will happen. Maybe they won't reach Christ. We don't know. We don't know the future. But I hope it's because we didn't say no for them. I hope it wasn't us that stopped the gospel from reaching them. If you and I have encountered Jesus, we should be able to see people as people, as God sees them, made in the image of God, just like you and I with potential to have a personal, loving, and profound relationship with Jesus. So let's testify that. Let's show the power of God. Let's tell what he's done in our lives. Let's show our transformation.
Let's show Jesus. Let's approach with weakness and trembling, knowing full well how imperfect we are and yet how perfect and wonderful Jesus is. Let's share that same love with people, the very people that God loves. Let's get off our computers and our phones and our social media and let's just go love someone. Let's let them encounter Jesus who brought us from the outside into family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your love is so great that you could love us, even us, and even them. God, may your love inspire us. May it drive out any of the hate, any of the disgust that we feel. God, would you inspire us to go out to those people who desperately need a touch from you. Send us, Lord. Send us your people. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Yeah, let's give Jesus praise. You doing all right, church? Yeah, it's been a kind of a heavy week, I know. Um, but we do have uh, the 11-year celebration coming up, right? That's next week. It's next week. If anyone would like to volunteer and help out, uh, do setup, uh, serving, uh, we have a whole list of, of things that need doing, please come talk to me or Kathy. Uh, we, we have a list. We have some jobs, uh, tasks that need doing. Um, please come to us, and we will get you set up. We would love to get your help. This, this, this really could be an all-hands-on-deck kind of, kind of thing. Okay? And, and just because it is uh, the ministry that I lead, tech workshops, again, if you want to learn, if you want to come and experience what we, what we do um, and, and, and learn that's not actually that complicated, um, please come see us. Please come see us. I would love to see you there, 11 o'clock next Saturday. Come see me. Uh, and Josh is going to lead us. Yay for Josh. And uh, yeah, so uh, come, come talk to any of us for that. So um, with that, have a great week, everybody. We love you guys.